The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 5. We continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and we have arrived at what is called the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message sermon ever delivered uh, by the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, he is taking the law that the Pharisees had so misconstrued and externalized, making it such a, a means of legalism and of works before God, and he is hitting really at the heart of what the law was meant to reveal, and ultimately what the true kingdom of God truly is, what it is truly like, what the citizens of God, of this kingdom of God, are truly like. I've encouraged you and will continue to encourage you when we read the Sermon on the Mount and when we look to really all the teachings of Jesus, uh, that you be careful not to moralize them. And what I mean by that is be careful not to think that you, in your lostness, you as an unbeliever can embrace the teaching of Jesus and apply it in your life in a way where by your works you're going to become more like Christ and justify yourself before God, before Holy God. So many people look to the Sermon on the Mount and apply it in such fashion. Where they think, if I can just be more like what Jesus describes, I will earn the favor of God. Well, that is not at all what Jesus is giving to us here. It is not a road map to the kingdom. Uh, it is actually a litmus test for the kingdom. Uh, there's a twofold application. One, to the unbeliever, to all of us in our flesh. This Sermon on the Mount reveals to us that we do not measure up to what we ought to be. That we aren't fit to be citizens of the kingdom of God. That there is something wrong with us. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of these characteristics, especially revealed here in these Beatitudes we're about to look to, they show us we aren't what we ought to be. They convict us. They ought to. They reveal to us we're unrighteous and we aren't what God requires. And yet, it leads us to... The gospel, it leads us to where this will lead, even Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, where he dies for sinners, unworthy, and he makes us new creations in Christ. He gives to us his spirit. We are given a new heart. He removes the heart of flesh and gives us a true spiritual life. We're born again. And now for the believer, even as we read this, we're reminded we in and of ourselves don't measure up to what we ought to be. This shows us that. But it also reveals to us in Christ what we ought to be. That there is an application in the Sermon on the Mount to every child of God that, that within Christ, Christ in us, ought to be reflecting these traits, these characteristics. And so it is something we yearn for and we strive for as believers, not in order to justify ourselves before God, uh, but because we are justified by Christ, by grace before the Lord. Let's look to these Beatitudes. That term Beatitude is coming from the Latin, which simply means blessing. Let's look to these blessings that God pronounces. We'll read all of them, all eight of them, and through verse 12, and then we'll, we'll land back on verse 4 for the morning. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, this is Jesus, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Back to verse 4, the attitude we will consider, look deeply, reflect upon this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, remember last week if you were here, meaning having an inward joy, an inward satisfaction, an inward contentment that's brought about by the favor of God. Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning those who grieve, those who lament, those who express sorrow even by quoting and and reading and praying the psalms of of lament, the psalms and scriptures that reveal the destitution and sorrow of our hearts. Happy are the unhappy. There's tension in these words of Jesus. Blessed in the favor of God and inward contentment and joy are those that are mourning, are those that are in grief, for they shall be comforted. Just as we spoke about last week, our culture being so against the thought of being poor in spirit, so is our culture so against this thought of the goodness, the blessing of grief, of mourning, of sadness. We just naturally even don't like to be sad. Uh, Rightfully so, right? We don't like to experience grief and to experience mourning. We We try to keep ourselves from sadness. We try to stay away even from other people who are sad. It makes us uncomfortable. It creates a a weird situation even when others are crying around us and we fail greatly to mourn with those who mourn. We know little of it. We want to be happy even if we must take pills in order to feel happier or or divert our attention with all sorts of leisure and distractions. We do all that we can do to not think about mourning, to not hear or listen to people talk about mourning, to, to definitely we, we don't want to participate in it and actually, actually commiserate in somebody's misery with grief and with sorrow. And yet Jesus declares here, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want us to think together for just a few moments about the blessing of mourning, the blessing of grieving. First, consider with me that in grieving over the sorrows of this life, we declare this world is not what it should be. That that when we experience grief and we lament and we are are mourning over the sorrows of this life, the the things that happen all around us, the 
the death and the accidents and the sickness and the, the, the wrong actions of others and all that is in this broken world, when we, when we grieve, understand that is a right and a fitting response to the brokenness of this world. You realize that what we experience day in and day out in our living is not the world as God designed it to be. We go back to Genesis 1, and what we find at the end of God's created work, after that sixth day, God pronounced all was good, and all was good. There was no pain and suffering. There was no sweat and toil. There was no death. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was a place of, of perfection. It was a place of divine comfort even in this good creation of God. It's hard for us to even imagine what, that's, what that would be like. What would it be like to live a life where there is no pain, where there is no sorrow, to not know what it is to shed a tear, to not know what it is to see someone else shed a tear, to never have anything have happened that was bad or sad or wrong. Think about that existence. That's the world as God created it. That's the world for which God created us. Let me word it that way. And yet what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They rebel against the clear command of God. And because of their sin, God brings a curse upon creation. The consequences of sin come into the, the existence of this world so that it is now reflecting the glory of God and the goodness of God. But it's been scarred. It's been marred. It's been drastically changed because of the consequences of sin. Bad things now happen. Suffering and pain and misery and even death itself all come as a consequence of, of sin. And you say, why would a loving God permit such a thing or even ordain such a thing, the consequences of sin in this life? Understand God gives the consequences of sin ultimately is a grace of His. That He may awaken a, a deafened world to the sinfulness of sin. The consequences of sin, pain and suffering and death, they declare to humanity, you are not little gods who can live your life however you want for as long as you want. Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against the one true living God, God Almighty. And they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And death was appointed upon them because they would have a day of reckoning. There will be a day of accountability. There will be a day it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, the consequences of sin are actually God's grace upon us that we may be awakened to the sinfulness of our sin and our need of salvation and our need of redemption, that there is a holy God that we have sinned against and we need restored, we need renewed, we need forgiven. And so God gave the consequences of sin. This world is cursed because of sin. We experience pain and suffering and death because of the sin of Adam and the sin that is intricately a part of every human being who comes from Adam. Thus, when we feel deep down inside that sin and especially death just aren't right, that like we, we, we ought to not die, that we ought to not have to suffer, that we ought to live forever in bliss, you realize those in and of themselves are not wrong desires. Those are God-given things written upon the human heart. But because of sin, that is not what is so. Because of sin, there is death. 
because of sin there is pain and suffering. And so our response to the brokenness of this world, rightly so, is what we call grief. It's what we call mourning. It's sadness because it is an understanding. It declares this isn't what ought to be. Children ought not to die before their parents. And and evil actions ought not to happen from from one person to another. And hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and and all the like ought ought not to be. People ought not to die. That is a right response. The grief, the the sadness upon our hearts. You remember back in seminary, a professor of mine, his father passed away the week before and he was sharing on Monday about the funeral service on Saturday. And he had a, a number of different of, of kids, I think five or six, but he had his nine-year-old with him who was driving in the vehicle that morning on Saturday to go to the funeral service. And the young child, you know, raised in a Christian home, looked up at his daddy and just asked, you know, Daddy, why did Grandpa have to die? Just in the innocence of a nine-year-old's mind and heart, knowing God and knowing Grandpa, Daddy, why? And... He didn't respond in that moment with the atheistic answer of, well, it's just the cycle of life. People are born and people die. And he didn't respond with what I like to call the heretical hallmark Christian answer. Well, God just needed another angel in heaven. No, and it's not. I hope that never is uttered out of your mouth. That is bad, bad theology. It's not that God needed another angel in heaven. Why did Grandpa die? paused and thought for a moment, looked at his boy and just simply answered sin. Sin is why Grandpa died. He wasn't saying necessarily the sin of Grandpa, although that comes into play. It's the sin of Adam that all of us are born into. That death has come because of sin. There's a goodness and understanding. The brokenness of this life is a gracious reminder from God that this world isn't what it ought to be. That this world needs redeemed, that this world needs restored, that this world needs to be made new. C.S. Lewis has written so much on what we're talking about. In a book early on called The Problem of Pain, he writes these words, pain insists upon being attended to, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The pains of this life are God's megaphone to rouse a world that has been deafened to the voice of God. And then later, a grief observed, he wrote after the passing of his wife later in his life. And he said these words, The dentist's drill, while an instrument of intense pain, ultimately brings healing. The drill of grief fosters healing in our lives by raising ultimate issues and eternal questions, such as, Who is my true beloved? And where is my real home? It's so beautifully expressed in that song. This is not, this is not our home. Our sufferings shout to us a temporary sorrow that points to an eternal healing. This isn't our home. There is a new heaven that is to come, a new heaven and a new earth. Too many people think that grief and that mourning is a a weak response to the sufferings of this life, that sorrow is a sign of of, of a weak faith before God, and that is not so, that is not true. Sorrow and grief and mourning are a valid, true, fitting response to the brokenness of this life. I won't read it for sake of time, but John chapter 11, the story of 
Jesus weeping. It's also the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The beginning of the verses of that chapter introduced the story, and Jesus is a, a day's journey away from Judea where Lazarus is, and he's sent message that Lazarus is sick unto death, and Jesus strangely does not immediately go to meet and heal Lazarus. He delays two days, and his disciples are are perplexed. Jesus, what are you doing? You've gotten word Lazarus is sick. He's dying. Won't you go heal him? You've healed the masses. And Jesus said this sickness isn't unto death, but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified. Jesus knew what he was going to do to show his power over even death itself, and yet he waits that two-day journey on his way in on that third day to Judea. Martha comes out to greet him, all distraught and the tears of sorrow plaguing her heart. Lazarus has died. He's been put in the grave. Jesus says some very powerful words to her about being the resurrection and the life. He goes on into the city, and Mary there is with the uh, friends and acquaintances that have gathered basically at this funeral procession where they are lamenting. They are shedding tears of grief. they're, They're mourning the loss of their brother, of their loved one, Lazarus. And Jesus, seeing this, he's moved by their grief unto grief. He's moved to tears coming down his face. And I, I've read some commentators who say that he was, he was moved to tears because of their lack of faith in the promise that he gave of raising, of being the resurrection and the life. And I look at that and say, you're, you're reading so much into this scripture to make that point, And you know nothing of the heart of God for suffering humanity if you think that. John even gives us a clue that he did not have to record when he says after Jesus wept, and the next verse he says the Jews who saw Jesus weeping declared, oh, how he loved him, oh, how he loved Lazarus. Hear me and understand this. The promise of future restoration does not remove the presence of sorrow in the present. Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the grave in just a matter of moments. And yet for that moment, seeing the the plight of humanity, of fallen humanity, the brokenness of this world, the, the loss of a loved one, even though temporary, it moved Christ to tears, to grieving, to mourning, because in that present moment, there was a right to be sorrowful. It was fitting to grieve the death of a loved one. Jesus is moved to tears, though he knows the resurrection is about to happen. And we have lost loved ones here amongst us, friends and family members. That There is, even though we have the hope of eternity and a promise of future restoration, it is right to grieve their absence. It's right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus declares to us in his tears that this isn't what ought to be. In his tears, he declares to us someday he will make all things new. And that gives us a hope to endure, a hope to persevere in the midst of our sorrow. But it does not negate the need of expressing grief. It's good to cry. It's good to shed tears of sorrow when we experience the brokenness of this life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice, secondly, first in our grieving over the sorrows of this life, we declare the world is not what it should be. Notice, secondly, in grieving over the sins of this life, 
We declare that we are not what we should be. Not only is this world not what it ought to be, but we, you and me, are not what we ought to be. The sorrows of this life, as I hopefully just convinced you, showed you, that they're meant to awaken us to this spiritual truth. That this world is not right because we're not right. That this world is not what it should be ultimately because we are not what we should be. We are sinners before a holy God. And it's a gracious act of God that He doesn't make us comfy and healthy and wealthy in the here and now for all eternity, living forever apart from Him. It's a gracious act of God that we endure trials and struggles and brokenness and even death that is coming in order that we may come to our senses, so to speak. In order that we may come to see the depravity of our own lives. In order that we may come to see our need of redemption, of salvation, of restoration, and that we may turn to Him in our brokenness and find that He is a God who saves, that He is a God who forgives. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul was writing to a church that was ignoring deep, dark sin. And he wrote and he said, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of such which is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So so sin that even the world would look at and say, that is gross sin. And it was going on within the church house, and they were ignoring it. They were not dealing with it rightly. They were not, what were they not doing? He says, and you are puffed up. You're arrogant over this sin. And have not rather mourned. Have not rather grieved over the offense that it is that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. James chapter 4, we read verse 7 and 8 often, but we stop halfway through 8. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't we love that thought that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And we often end there because how does it continue? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the context of Jesus' words, this beatitude immediately follows the one that, that precedes it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We looked at that last week. Dealing what? With our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that recognize they have no righteousness in and of themselves. Those that recognize they are impoverished spiritually before God. They're sinners unworthy of His grace and of His favor and of His blessing. And then He follows that up with blessed are those that mourn. In the context, He's dealing primarily with those who grieve and mourn over the sinfulness of sin. Those who grieve even over their own personal sins before a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So many think that they have a religious experience because they go to a praise and worship concert and they jump up and down and lift their hands in the air and sing great words about a great God, but it's all high and and lifting up and they know nothing about the true way to God. They know nothing about, you don't come to Him hands lifted high. 
jumping and shouting with joy. You come to him with your face buried in the dirt as an unworthy sinner in humility and in brokenness before him. Mourning and grieving with contrition and penance in your heart over your sinfulness before a holy God. And it's only then and it's only there that he washes you with the blood of Christ and he lifts you up. When you humble yourself before God, not arrogant and puffed up in pride over your sins and ignoring them, but confessing them in penitence before the Lord. Psalm chapter 51. One of the most beautiful chapters in the Psalms regarding repentance, regarding lamenting over the sinfulness of sin. We know David is such a great king. David who defeats Goliath. David who is a man after God's own heart. But you do understand just how great the sin of David was, don't you? David is a man who committed adultery and murder. David is a man who was king at a time when kings went to war. And his armies were out battling, but he was hanging out in the comfort of his palace on the rooftop looking over his kingdom. And he saw a woman bathing. Likely not anything she was doing immodest. It's likely his vantage point at the height of his palace looking over his city. He saw her and saw that she was beautiful. He inquired of her and he took her. He found out he was she was actually married to Uriah, but that did not stop him. That did not stop her. And so they had their night together and lo and behold, weeks, months go by and Come to find out she has conceived a child by David. Her husband's still on the battlefield. They seek to cover up this great sin by uh, David comes up with this idea. Why don't I bring Uriah off the battlefield and, and hopefully he'll come home, spend the night with his wife, and we can just move forward as if it's his child. And, and he does. He brings, her, brings him off the battlefield, but he, um, being a, a true in a sense, just man, he, he does not spend the night in the comfort of his home while his fellow soldiers were still out on the battlefield. He never, he never spends the night with her. And so David still isn't, isn't brought to mourning and grief over his sin. He still in pride tries to cover it and comes up with this elaborate scheme. You know what? If Uriah is such a, a great soldier, let's put him on the front line, knowing very good and well that those on the front line would die. So he commands his commander to make sure Uriah is put on the front lines. They do it. Uriah dies in battle. David seemingly has it all figured out. All of his great dark sin covered. Except God saw the whole thing. And Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to David at a later moment and has a little story for David. He, he tells David, hey, there was this really rich man and there was this really poor man. This rich man had all of his animals, all of these livestock in this town, and he owned, he owned much. Wealthy, wealthy man. And there was this poor man, and the poor man, he only had one little lamb. And this little lamb was like a child to him. It grew up in their house with their children. And it ate at their dinner table, for goodness sake, with them. It was his one cherished little lamb. And he said the rich man had some visitors come into town. And instead of going and slaughtering an animal of all the abundance that he had, he took this poor man's one little lamb and he killed it and he served it for dinner. And David, as king, would often make judicial decisions before the people. David is furious. David says this man ought to die. He must pay back fourfold that which he took. And Nathan looked at him and said, David, you are that man. And in 
that moment, the recognition that God has seen it all and that God is not deceived, that God is not mocked, that God will judge David. With that in mind and in background, writes these words of Psalm chapter 51. Turn there if you have not. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions before you, and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast away, cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit that then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings, David says, or else I would give it to bring that up into our day and age. David is saying, God, you don't desire church attendance. It's not that you desire a praise song with my hands lifted high. It's not that you desire the giving of my offerings in the offering plate. God, if you desired these things, I would give it. What is it that you require? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That when a sinner comes to the place of understanding the grievance of their sin before a holy God, and they repent over it, they mourn over it, they have contrition, penance in their heart, sorrow, grief over their sin before God, and they fall down flat upon the ground in humility and in brokenness before God. That is what God hears. That is what God will not turn a deaf ear to. That he turns a deaf ear to any and all who come in their pride and arrogance of their spirituality, thinking their righteousness, which is as filthy rags, can justify them before holy God. God does not hear the call of that person. God hears the call of the broken, repentant sinner. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. right to mourn the sorrows of this life. It is right even more so to mourn 
the sins of this life which have brought about the sorrows of this life. I hope you understand that our God is a God who delights in forgiving sinners. He gave His Son in order that we might have the means of being forgiven. He does not begrudgingly forgive you when you repent and when you're grievous, when you're mournful over your sins. He rejoices in that forgiveness. He is the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He is the woman who lost the widow that lost her her coin, who searches for it day in and day out. And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors and rejoices He is the good shepherd that leads the 99 to find the one lost sheep. He is the father of the prodigal son. Who when the wayward son returns, what does he do? He runs to greet the son upon his return. He shields him even from the shame and mockery that all those in the city would rightly give to this son who so wasted and squandered everything his father gave him. When the son returned, the father ran to greet him and to clothe him and to celebrate his return. It's a picture of the gracious, merciful goodness of God and his delight of forgiving repentant sinners. If you're here and you worry that God will not forgive you, you're sorely mistaken. If you'd only repent, if you'd only grieve your sin and turn to Christ, He will gladly pardon your iniquity. He will gladly forgive and redeem and cover you in the righteousness of His Son. I want to close and leave you with a quote I heard many years ago that has stuck with me from Thomas Watson. Till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Question for every one of us who examine our lives that go by now. How bitter is sin to you? When's the last time you grieved and mourned over your sin and confessed it before God? Too often we're like the Christians in Corinth that's puffed up and just think our sin is no big deal. It is right and it is fitting. It's a blessing of God even to grieve over our sins and find blessed are those who mourn. For they, only they, shall be comforted. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom, lament and mourn. Cleanse your hands, O Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to You. A holy and a just God. A God who is a God of loving kindness and mercy and grace. Lord, You will not pardon those who do not repent. But for those who do, You delight. You get glory in forgiving and redeeming and restoring washing us clean. Lord, I know it's so easy for all of us who are Your children to think that our daily sins aren't a big deal because we're forgiven. We're eternally secure in Christ. Lord, may You awaken us even now to the error of such thinking. If any in here have sin in their life that is unconfessed, they would confess it now, grieve and mourn over it, and find that you're a God who is 
faithful to forgive us of our iniquities. Lord, if there be any in here who's ever come to you for salvation, never began that walk with Christ, I pray that now they would see the sinfulness of their sin and the glory of Christ crucified, buried, and raised again, that He is the Savior of the world. But they need Him. They need His atonement. They need His forgiveness. If they would repent, they'd grieve over their sin. They would find you're a God who will save them. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. We pray this in Jesus' name.